Good to be here. Everyone breathe and relax. Woo. Sorry for being late. I was slightly late. Mixture of traffic and the Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> don't go to the retail park. That's all I'm saying. The, the traffic is chaos. If that was your plan, ab abandon your plans. Go and have a barbecue at home instead. It'd be much less stressful. Well, listen, great to be together. I hope you're having a good morning. Really good to be just with a family today and just good to be with God's people. And a uh, real warm welcome to you if you're here, perhaps for the first time. So, so good to have you here. And just recognize coming to church for the first time can be a bit daunting, very different probably. Um, but just to say you're super, super welcome. We just love having guests. And um, if you've got any questions at all, we just love to have you ask them. We might not be able to answer them all, but we'd love to just engage with you. And please do go and make your way outside afterwards to our welcome area. We'd love just to say hello and make friends with you. Um, and today we are starting a new teaching series called When God Comes to Town. So strap on your seatbelts because we've got six weeks of When God Comes to Town. So um, I'm just giving you a heads up before we kind of crack into it. And really, the aim of this series is to look at what happens when God pours out His Spirit on the church. What happens? How do we prepare ourselves? How do we posture our hearts? How do we get ourselves ready for those moments where God suddenly comes to town? Um, and many of you perhaps will have heard recently of what has come to be known as the Asbury outpouring. Just give me a wave if you've heard of the Asbury outpouring. Okay, some of us. And... Um, the Asbury outpouring, for those of you that have not heard of it, uh, on February the 8th, 2023, 19 students decided to stay behind after their regular chapel service had taken place um, at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. And uh, they stayed behind after the service. They just heard the preaching of the word. The, the, the guy who delivered the preaching said it was probably one of his worst sermons. He's like, it was a terrible sermon. <laughs> but irrespective, these 19 students, 20-year-old students decided to stay behind after chapel and they began to confess their sins to one another. And suddenly, in that context, the Spirit of God was poured out upon those 19 students in such a way that it, it kick-started weeks and weeks of continuous revival worship services in the chapel and over the next two weeks, it was estimated that 50 to 70,000 people poured into that tiny chapel in Kentucky to see what the Spirit of God was doing, many of whom saying they had their lives completely turned upside down. Because we believe that although God is everywhere, He loves to show up somewhere. Amen? We believe in a God who's omnipresent. He's everywhere. There's nowhere that you can escape from His presence. If you make your bed in the heights, he's there. If you make your bed in the depths, he's there. God is everywhere in the universe that he has created. He is in all things and all things come from him. He's everywhere. But the God who's everywhere loves to show up somewhere. And scripture is full of those moments where the God who's everywhere shows up somewhere and everything changes in a moment. And that's what's happening in, in Asbury, this moment where suddenly God kind of pulls the curtain aside and steps onto the stage and says, here I am. And everything changes. Pete Gregor, a friend of our church, a pastor in Guildford, he went to visit what was happening in Asbury. And uh, this is what he said. He said, first, as I've often said, when it comes to reports of revival, I'd far rather be gullible than cynical. 
Now just pause at that statement. Would you rather be gullible or would you rather be cynical? <laughs> just examine your own heart on that one. Secondly, he says, we need this. What's happening at Asbury is not everything, but it is something. And right now, we need something to shock the system so that this generation can experience for themselves the life-changing power of God. We need repentance and holiness. We need the kind of outpouring of the Spirit on campuses that can incubate and detonate a new generation to preach the gospel with greater confidence, fight injustice with greater defiance, and transform society with greater intelligence. Pete says, beyond human programs, products, and personalities, we need God's power, presence, and perspective. In other words, we need a sovereign inbreaking of the Holy Spirit. He says, America was built on such awakenings, and the UK was saved by them. And they always, always, always begin in precisely this way, in seasons of concerted prayer. Friends, we need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. How many of you realize that? <laughs> How many of you realize that your best programs, your best ideas, your best acts of service ultimately is not enough? We need God to come to town. We need God to do something that only God can do. As the prophet says, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We need a moment of God coming, of heaven coming from heaven to earth. And you know, we in a moment are going to turn to Nehemiah chapter 8, which is a, 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 a kind of a revival moment in the history of Israel, where Israel moved from a moment of rebuilding to a moment of renewal and refreshing and revival. God takes them from out of the ordinary into an extraordinary moment. We'll read the account of that in just a moment. But, you know, I've, I've always loved reading stories of revival. Even as a teenager, my favorite book growing up, and probably the book I've read more than any other books other than the Bible, is this book, Great Revivals by Colin Whitaker. Just wave at me if you've ever read this book. I see that hand, Nick. Anyone else? Okay, I just want to recommend this book to you. If you want to stir your faith for revival, then, in fact, is there someone here, and you wanna, you've got a passion for revival... There you go, you can have my copy. Bless you, my friend. And uh, in that book, Colin Whitaker says this about revival. He says, by revival, we mean those special seasons of divine visitation when God the Holy Spirit quickens and stirs the slumbering church of God. Believers are set ablaze for Christ and the power of God is so manifest in prevailing prayer and anointed preaching of the gospel that the most hardened and skeptical unbelievers are brought under great conviction of sin, leading to genuine repentance and saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or as Henry Blackaby says, revival is when God's people return to God and God returns to them and everybody sees the difference. That's what we're praying for. We're praying that we would return to God, fully to God, that he would return to us and then everybody would see the difference. Revival. My favorite revival that I used to read about as a kid was the Welsh Revival. Started in 1904. Here's a picture of a revival meeting in Wales in 1904. Tents packed full of actually very immaculately dressed people. I mean, they were really well dressed and very orderly. Um, but in Wales in 1904, the Spirit of God was poured out in Wales in such a remarkable way that within two years, 100,000 people had given their lives to Jesus for the very first time as God poured out his spirit. 
The crowds were so large trying to get into churches and chapels that there wasn't enough room for them. They would queue for hours to get into places where God was. Prayer meetings would last seven hours plus because nobody wanted to leave. Now, just imagine we get to one o'clock and it's time for us to leave. You know, we've got plans this afternoon. We've got barbecues. We've got family get-togethers. Got so, you know, we want to watch the Grand Prix on the TV. You know, stuff like that. We've got plans. But what happens when God comes to town is suddenly those things just don't feel quite so important anymore. Because if God's in the place, why would I want to leave? And that's what was happening in Wales. God was present in such a remarkable way. Um, Cardiff police reported a 60% decrease in drunkenness across all of Wales. 40% fewer people were, were sent to jail. Coal miners, hardened coal miners, would be in prayer meetings till 3 a.m. Then they would go home, snatch a few hours sleep, and then go down the mines. And it was said that the pit ponies, the horses, could no longer understand the coal miners because they no longer swear and cussed at their ponies. So the ponies didn't know how to go about their daily business because the coal miners' language had changed. And there was this remarkable move of God. In the end, judges had no cases to try in Wales during the revival. Just imagine that. <laughs> By December 1904, the police had so little to do that they went with the crowd singing songs to church services. Just imagine that in Bedford. <laughs> if you arrive here at the 11.30 service and, you know, Morrison's car park is full up, the hospital car park, every conceivable place is filled up with cars and there's queues. And among them are the police and the magistrates and the judges because they've got nothing to do. That's what happened in Wales in 1904. And what happened in Wales spread right across the known world into, into Sweden, Denmark, Germany, Korea, France, India, Belgium, China, right across the continent of Africa and many, many more places. When God comes to town, everything changes. We need God to come to town, don't we, friends? <laughs> I mean, God bless our small groups. God bless our serving. God bless our fellowship. God bless our church meetings. God bless all the things that we're doing. I love these things. But friends, we need more. We need him. We need his presence in a tangible, remarkable way. And that's what happens as we turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. The context for Nehemiah is the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down for 152 years. So Jerusalem had been absolutely ransacked. The temple burnt to the ground, the walls completely destroyed, the best and the brightest exiled out of Jerusalem into Babylon, and for 152 years it had been that way. And then under Nehemiah's leadership and Ezra the priest, the people begin to return to Jerusalem and they begin to rebuild. And they rebuild the walls within 52 days. This is a remarkable move of the spirit that happened in Israel's history. And then as we hit chapter eight, we see this kind of culmination of the people gathering together to freshly put themselves under God. And we see three characteristics of revival. And the first one is a return of longing for God. Chapter eight, verse one. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gates. That has nothing to do with Robert Nixon. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. 
which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. My phone is going off. I'm just going to turn that off. So here we get this moment where suddenly the people of God gather together and they're listening attentively to the word of God being preached to them. It's a moment of fresh consecration, of saying, God, we long for you. Our history is one of us rebelling against you, but now we're coming together to say, God, we long for you. And they are attentive to the word of God being preached to them. And this is always the first sign of the outpouring of God's presence is God returns a longing for God to his people. God's people start to long for God again. God's people start to long for God again. That's what you see in the Gospels. As Jesus was preaching around all the towns and villages of Galilee, what you find, Scripture says, is that all the towns and villages emptied to go and hear Jesus preach. That's what you call revival. As Jesus was passing through villages, people would drop what they were doing and go and get to be where Jesus was. I mean, just think about the feeding of the 5,000. Why did no one pack lunch that particular day? Have you ever thought about that? Why did only one boy pack his lunch? 5,000 men plus women and children didn't bring anything to eat. Doesn't that strike you as a bit odd? Well, in my thinking, they were there without food because they were so desperate to be where Jesus was. They literally just dropped everything and just ran. (laughs) Jesus is on that mountain. I've got to go and be with him. Their last thought in their mind was, right, I need to get a packed lunch, make sure I've got a water bottle and, you know, make sure I've got my glasses to, you know. That that was their last thought. Jesus is preaching. I just want to be where he is. You know, that's why when buildings were so full that you couldn't get in, Friends had to lower their invalid mate through the, wind, through the door, through the ceiling. They, they stripped the ceiling away and lowered him into the room. Just imagine if that happened now. People just started stripping tiles off the roof of King's house to lower their friends here because God was here. Well, that's what happens in revival. Think about the woman with the issue of blood. Jesus is passing through. The crowds were so dense. It says all that she could do is just reach in and touch the hem of his robe. But she was so desperate for Jesus, it says power flowed from him to her, and she was instantly healed. That's what happens in revival. People have a longing for God, a desperation to be where he is. In revival, God returns to his people, that kind of longing. Pete Hughes, who also visited the Asbury outpouring, said this of it. He said, at one level, it was totally underwhelming. The sound quality wasn't incredible, The worship leaders were 19 and 20-year-olds at the beginning of learning their craft. They started songs at the wrong pace, occasionally in the wrong key, but none of it mattered because the presence of God was so thick. No one was mesmerized by production or presentation. People were mesmerized by the presence of Jesus in the room. And what we've learned from Asbury is people don't really want smoke machines and lights. What they want is the presence of God. Friends, that's the kind of church we want to build here. Not about presentation, not about production, not about lights, not about sound, but about the presence of Jesus. That's why we want to show up together. It's because the presence of Jesus here and we're mesmerized by him. And in 
times of outpouring, God begins to return to his people that deep, long, insatiable appetite, I must have God. And the question is, friends, does that describe you? And does it describe me? Does that describe the state of your heart right now? You know, my um, parents were recently going through my grandparents' belongings. Both my grandparents are now with Jesus. And uh, they discovered a letter that I wrote to my grandparents 30 years ago when I was 17. And they'd kept it. And I was reading my own letter, and my own letter was convicting me about how much I long for God. And as I read it, I thought, did I long for God more as a 17-year-old than as a 47-year-old? Did I pray for revival more when I was 17 than I do today? And I think, honestly, the answer is yes. And this week, I've had to repent. I've had to say, God, would you return to me the desperation and longing that I felt then? This is what I wrote to them. I just got back from a Bible week. I said, it rained almost constantly <laughs> while we were there. Most of my belongings got extremely wet. Still, never mind, the manner in which God met us all far outweighed the weather, praise God. Personally, I know that I have come back having a greater passion for Jesus and a greater desire to see him glorified in England. The only remedy for our country's sin and hopelessness is a revival from God. We, like many other churches, are finding that God is pouring out his spirit again in a new and more powerful way. I pray that the Lord would continue to bend us to his will and give us his food from heaven, which we so need to live on. Friends, how's your hunger for God? What's your appetite like for him? It's a different question than are you going to church? How's your thirst for Jesus? How's your passion for his presence? How's your pursuit of him and his face? In the 1740s revival, I love this story of a man called Nathan Cole. He wasn't a believer, but he heard that a man called George Whitfield was preaching 12 miles away. And Nathan Cole, because he knew that God's presence was there whenever Whitfield preached the gospel, I'll read you the account. He says this, I was in my field at work and I instantly dropped my tool that I had in my hand and I ran home through the house and bade my wife to get ready quick to go and hear Mr. Whitfield preach. This is someone who doesn't know Jesus. I ran to my pasture for my horse with all my might, fearing that I should be too late to hear him and took up my wife and went forward as fast as I thought the horse could bear. And when my horse began to be out of breath, I would get down, put my wife on the saddle, she was obviously smaller than he was, and bid her ride as fast as she could and not stop or slack for me except when I told her. And so I would run until I was almost out of breath and then mount my horse again. We improved every moment to get along as though we were fleeing for our lives, fearing that we should be too late to hear the sermon, for we had 12 miles to ride in little more than an hour. He then describes the closer they got to Whitfield, they saw this great cloud of dust on the road and a sound that he described like thunder. And it was literally the sounds of thousands of people on horseback riding as fast as they could to hear Whitfield preach in the fields. And then he says, when we got down to the old meeting house, there was a great multitude. 
It was said to be three or 4,000 people. And when I looked towards the great river, I could see ferry boats running forwards and backwards, bringing loads of people. Everything, men, horses, and boats seemed to be struggling for life. And that day, Nathan Cole gave his life to Christ and his life was forever changed. He was so desperate for God, he dropped everything to go and hear the gospel preached. How's your longing for God? And it may be like me, the first prayer you need to pray today is, God, I want to want you more. I want to want you more than I do. I want to long for you. I want to be desperate again for your presence, your spirit, that nothing else will do. Because that's how seasons of revival start. Secondly, revival always comes with moments of fresh surrender. So we read this, Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood a whole bunch of beautiful men with difficult names to pronounce. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. We'll just pause there. I remember when I first started going to my secondary school in Brighton, they taught us that as soon as the teacher walked into the room, you would stand up. And you wouldn't sit down until the teacher gave you permission to do so. And at the time, I thought, ah, this is just nonsense. But in hindsight, <laughs> I realize now perhaps what they were trying to teach me as a young man, which was this. When someone with authority walks into the room, you stand up as a mark of honor and respect. And you don't sit down until they give you permission to do so. And that's what's happening in this passage. As the people gather together, start to hear the word of God preached to them, it says they stood up. Why did they do that? Because it was a sign of honor and surrender and submission to the word of God. They, they were in this moment freshly surrendering their lives and saying, God, we're no longer gonna live as if your word was beneath us. We're gonna start living as if your word is above us. We are honoring you. We are honoring your words. We're freshly coming today to surrender our whole lives to you. That's what's happening in this particular moment. They all stand. This is a moment of fresh consecration where they're dealing with their divided hearts. And again, this is always what happens in moments of outpouring. God starts to deal with the divided hearts of his people. We begin to realize, yes, I long for God, but I know there's many other things that I also long for, and sometimes I long for them more than I long for Jesus. And in times of outpouring, God begins to expose the areas of our life that are divided, where we're double-minded. He brings us into moments of fresh consecration. It's fascinating to me that Asbury started with 19 students confessing their sins to one another. What are they doing? They're doing exactly what happens in Nehemiah 8. God, your word is over us. We confess our sin. We submit our lives and surrender to you. And the God who's everywhere loves to show up somewhere. And those are the places that he shows up in. When people humble themselves and surrender and submit. You know, I remember as a young man, I got given my first electric guitar and it was a red Stratocaster. I know, I, loved, I love that guitar. 
mainly because it looked like Mark Knopfler's guitar from Dire Straits. I love that guitar. I couldn't play it very well, but I love that guitar. And at that particular time, as a teenager, it was the most expensive, precious possession that I had. But I remember almost a year in, the Lord said to me, Phil, I want you to always live with a willingness to give this away if I ask you to. I was like, really? I love this guitar. <laughs> but to me, it was a moment where the Lord was saying, no, no, listen, everything belongs to me, Phil. And I want you always to live with the attitude that all you have is actually mine. And at the time, that red Stratocaster represented the most expensive, precious thing I could think that I might have to give up one day. But listen, 30 years later, the principle still applies in my life. That red Stratocaster is long gone, but I've got many other precious things in my life that are far more valuable to me than that guitar ever was. A home, a family, my life, my friendships, my job, the things that I love in my life. But ultimately, all of that is on borrowed from the Lord. It all belongs to Him. And we have to live in these moments of outpouring with a sense of fresh surrender. All I have belongs to you. I submit everything I have. It's yours, Lord. Whatever you've given me, you can use it for your glory. It all belongs to you. If you want me to sell my house and give the possessions to the poor, then that's your prerogative. It's no longer a guitar, but it's other things now. And in moments of outpouring, God brings his people to a place where their hearts are no longer divided and they're willing to surrender everything. I wonder if that describes you in this particular moment. And then lastly, seasons of outpouring are moments of fresh, powerful encounter with God. We read in verse six, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. It's the last thing we see in revivers, God's people encounter him in fresh ways. And here as Ezra is preaching the law, he's not even preaching the gospel, he's preaching the law to the people of God. They are so struck with conviction that they are weeping to the extent where Ezra has to try and calm them down and counsel them to stop. I can't imagine what that would be like if you were weeping so much right now that I had to counsel you to stop. But that's what Ezra had to do as the spirit was poured out. It was a moment of fresh visitation in two ways. Number one, extravagant worship. They encountered God in a, in a place of worship. It says they bowed down with their faces to the ground. In revival times, worship is restored. And we just want to sing. We literally just want to sing until our voices give out. Sing, 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 sing. Psalm 85 says this, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? So what happens in revival. Rejoicing just begins to erupt. And that's why every move of the Spirit always comes with new songs. Every revival comes with revival songs. The songs we sing today are still some of the songs that were written in times of revival. Some of those songs that were written even in the Welsh revival, we still sing today because they were birthed in the spirit of God. Someone said this about Martin Luther. He said, there has never been any great religious movement without the use of sacred song. 
Luther set all of Germany ablaze with religious enthusiasm as he sang his magnificent hymn, Ein Festburg ist unser Gott, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, in which multitudes of Christian soldiers joined. Worship is ignited in times of revival, and then also conviction of sin. The people are weeping because of their conviction of their own sin. This is one of the things that happens in outpourings. In the Hebrides revival in 1949, it was the last known revival, recorded revival we have in the British Isles in 1949 in the Hebrides Islands in Scotland. And a man called Duncan Campbell was one of the most prominent leaders in that particular revival. And he told stories of leaving meetings in the middle of the night and finding people weeping for sin in the middle of the road or, or just at the side of the, of the verges, literally just overcome with a sense of their sinfulness, returning their hearts to God. He said this, he said, the awful presence of God brought a wave of conviction of sin that caused even mature Christians to feel their sinfulness, bringing groans of distress and prayers of repentance from the unconverted. Strong men were bowed under the weight of sin and cries for mercy were mingled with shouts of joy from others who passed from death into life. When God comes to town, it's a moment of fresh encounter where we realize how sinful sin is and how merciful the Father is. And I wonder if we could stand together and I want us just to take a moment to respond to him.